I'm going to teach you. I'm going to show you how to walk, how to speak, how to move, how to think. Together, you and I are going to make the greatest single contribution to science since the creation of fire. Dr. Frankenstein, are you all right? My name is Frankenstein! From the darkest corners of Chicago, this is the Unenthusiastic Critics Halloween Movie Marathon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today is the lovely Nakia, woman, friend, wife. One of those is not true. <laughs> also known as The Unenthusiastic <laughs> Critic. You're not a woman? Really? That's the one you're going to go for? On this week's episode, Nikki and I begin a five-week ordeal of ghosts and ghouls, spooks and spirits, creatures, creepers, and crazies as we undertake the Unenthusiastic Critics 2019 Halloween Movie Marathon. Each week in October, we'll be sitting down for Nakia's first viewing of at least one horror classic, and we're beginning this week with an absolutely essential creature double feature, James Whale's iconic 1931 classic Frankenstein, and his even more highly regarded sequel from 1935, Bride of Frankenstein. Nakia, for any new listeners who may not have caught our previous marathon, would you like to briefly summarize your feelings about the horror genre? I hate it. Full stop. Full stop. That's <laughs> all you have to say about it. Um, I have never enjoyed the idea of paying to be scared or spending my time yeah. to be scared. It just, I, that sort of baffles me. I, I don't enjoy it. You're kind of a scaredy cat. It's a, sort of. I see it less as being a scaredy cat and more about, I don't like to bring bad hoodoo into my life, so I don't invite <laughs> that shit. So I don't, I don't spend my time there. And yet, in spite of this, or to be honest, because of this, mm-hmm. I think we have watched more horror movies for the unenthusiastic critic than any other genre. Yes, because you torture me with this every year. <laughs> Back when we were doing this as a blog series, we did the Halloween Marathon several years. We didn't do it every year. Mm -hmm. And we subjected you to such classics as The Exorcist, The Thing, Night of the Living Dead, Halloween, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Wicker Man, Evil Dead, and Reanimator, among Mm -hmm. many others. All of which have since become favorites of yours. I disagree. With which one? All... (laughs) None of those have become favorites of mine. Uh, Listeners can find all of those posts at unaffiliatedcritic.com. And then last October on the podcast, we watched... What did we watch? We watched Suspiria. I did like that. Okay. You liked some of those others, too, by the way. Sure. All right. Uh, The Innocents. Raw. You liked Raw. I did like Raw. Evil Dead 2. I liked, I think, 10 minutes of that. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds right. And then the rest of it Mm could have gone to hell. And we watched a double bill of Friday the 13th and Sleepaway Camp. Which I will never forgive you for. (laughs) 
So all in all, it was a rousing success, is my point. It depends on how you define success. Uh, how how excited are you to once again be doing the, the Monster Mash this year? Quite frankly, I was hoping we'd run out of horror films. We're never going to run out of horror I films. I think we will, no. because you're going to hit the, the sort of dregs that don't warrant inclusion in this little project of yours. But I think, I think the beauty of the horror genre is that even, or especially the terrible ones, mm-hmm. would be fun to watch with you. Okay. I mean, a shitty drama is probably not going to be fun to watch with you. Mm-hmm. A shitty horror movie, you know, Leprechaun or no, not doing Pumpkinhead not, or not doing that. You know, any of those I think would be just as fun to watch with you, if not more fun than Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist. Or- but the point of this exercise is that these are films that everyone has seen or they have ro- risen to some sort of level of film icon status. And, uh-huh. and those films that you just named do not. Oh, sure they do. No. Yeah. No. All right, but you cannot deny... I probably can, but go ahead. You, I'm sure you will, but you can't. Mm-hmm. If you're discussing iconic status, essential films, mm-hmm. the two we are watching today are pretty undeniably iconic. Sure. Okay. You admit this? I admit that. All right. And in fact, let's talk for a minute about these sort of classic movie monsters. Mm-hmm. And this is... Both of these movies were released by Universal Studios, and Universal sort of cornered the market on monsters. Beginning in the 20s and then running into the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the Universal classic monsters. It's considered one of the first shared universes mm-hmm. in film. Universal got the horror ball rolling with silent films, uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Phantom of the Opera in the 20s, both with Lon Chaney. And then in 1931, Todd Browning's Dracula with Bela Lugosi. And nine months later, the first Frankenstein movie came out. And then over the next couple of decades, basically, whatever you think of when you think of movie monsters, they started off in the Universal Mm -hmm. Studios pictures. The Mummy, The Invisible Man, The Wolf Man, Creature from the Black Lagoon. These are the monsters we're talking about. Nearly all of which were designed by makeup artist Jack Pierce. So that's a legacy because basically they defined what these monsters mm-hmm. look like in the popular imagination. Even though the ones that were based on other sources, they're pretty loose adaptations. Right. I mean, the Dracula in the movie is not that much like the Dracula in the book. The Frankenstein monster in the movie is even less like the monster in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter. They own these monsters now in the popular imagination. And I got to thinking about that because these monsters are so pervasive in the culture. I don't remember when I first encountered them. I don't think I saw any of the classic movies early. Mm-hmm. I may have seen on television some of Frankenstein or whatever when I was a small child, but I knew who all the monsters were. I think a couple of those movies I still have never seen. I don't think I've ever seen Creature from the Black Lagoon. We'll probably watch that okay. for this series one of these days. Have you seen any of those? No. None of, you haven't seen Dracula? I haven't seen Dracula. I haven't seen Frankenstein. The original Wolfman. None of them. Nope. Okay. Again, we're not going to run out of horror movies. because we, like we are. We can do all of those for this series. Mm-hmm. So when I say Dracula to you, what do you what do you think of? What do I think of? When you say Dracula, well, so I was thinking about this of like when I would have first encountered some version of those monsters, however derivative mm-hmm. from the original, and it probably would have been the monsters. Would have been the yep. first time that I would have seen Frankenstein. Right. The Dracula was the grandfather. I think he wasn't mm-hmm. he a vampire. Yep. So that probably would have been the first time that I saw that sort of classic movie monster. Was there a 
werewolf or anything on that show. I don't remember that show as well. As the, I do the, the little family. boy, I think, was a wolf boy. Okay. So he was he was like um, he turned into a wolf. Eddie Munster. Yeah, Eddie Munster. So yeah, so that would have been the mm-hmm. first thing that I sort of encountered that very distinct visual of those characters. I mean, I think they were licensed all over the place. Mm-hmm. So I think just the imagery was everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think, like you said, there were derivatives. I mean, the Count on Sesame right, Street. Right, yes. Or, you know, when I was a kid, there were the cereals, the... Oh, yeah, Cap- Franken- the Frankenberry and Count Chocula, yes, et cetera, right. et cetera, yes. that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think I knew the characters from visuals, mm-hmm. just from, mm-hmm. you know, licensing and lunchboxes and... Halloween, those cheap Halloween costumes, yes. they're, you know, the plastic masks yeah. with the rubber band that were terrible. And probably not actually child safe. Yeah, yes. no, not at all. Yes. So have you seen later versions of any of these these creatures? I've seen later Draculas. Okay, you've seen the Keanu I've Reeves, <laughs> terrible Dracula. The genius Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, yes. Um, is that the only... Oh, I saw the De Niro Frankenstein. Oh, the Kenneth Branagh version? Yes. Uh, That's more faithful to the book. Yeah. Um, I don't love that movie, though. It's... No, it's not great. I think Kenneth Branagh is a little... He's very dramatic. Um, <laughs> but that would have been probably my my most recent Frankenstein's monster. Mm, okay. Did we see the, uh, the Benedict Cumberbatch one? No. I saw it. I don't remember if we saw it together. I don't think I did. I don't it was, remember. It was that. a play that he and uh, I think Johnny Lee Miller oh, and did. They swapped and they characters. Swapped parts. Yes. I think we did see that. And yes. There was, there was a yes. film of the stage version. Yes. We yeah. did see that. I vaguely remember that. Yeah. Um, but that would have been pretty much it for those okay. um, those sorts of characters. What about The Mummy? Did you see the, the Brendan Fraser mummy movies? Any of no. those? Okay. <laughs> You'll be happy to hear I, I have no intention of making you watch those, nor the recent Tom Cruise oh, yes. version of The Mummy, yes. which was supposed to, the plan was that was going to launch this new dark universe, mm-hmm. a new shared universe from Universal. They were going to bring back all of these iconic monsters, put them in a shared universe that could challenge the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Didn't quite work out. Or the Harry Potter movies that could be a big franchise like that. Uh, and then the mummy bombed, and yeah, now that that plan is off the table, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> I was actually thinking about this because I was trying to, if I can say anything nice about horror films, it is that it is a particularly visual genre that has sort of birthed some really just indelible characters visually. Mm-hmm. And so thinking of this sort of original slate of Universal Studios characters and and sort of how they were the template for a lot of what we would see in later years, the sort of power of that. And then I was trying to think of more contemporary horror films and if they had the same sort of Mm, power mm -hmm. in them. And I guess they do. I think, I mean, I think... I think there are very few. There are fewer, fewer of them. So, like, Jason is not as... I guess... And that's and so you get and but there isn't anything that's like that defining and that sort of this is the template for. I mean, what? I think I think Jason more. I think Michael Myers in Halloween. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still don't. I don't think they rise to the yeah. level of like that Frankenstein monster design. Yeah. But then I thought about the Babadook. That's the a, Babadook is, I don't think it ha- it's had the same cultural it hasn't, impact. But I think it has a potential, like that's a very... It is, and that taps into something yeah. very primal yeah. somehow. That, that, that feels archetypal in yeah. a way. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I mean, maybe I was just a tad too old to get into like the Freddy Krueger thing, but mm. maybe for later generations mm-hmm. that's... I guess, yeah. 
probably almost as recognizable as some of those classic monsters. Yes, but still not, it still doesn't feel, at least to me, as essential. Yeah. Or as, as like, no, I don't think if so you either. took this strand out of, like, the whole thing would fall apart. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you took Frankenstein's monster out, if you took Dracula out, the whole thing falls apart. So I was just thinking, I just thought that that was interesting. I was just like... Yeah, no, the, I mean, the great monsters like that feel like they have always existed. Yeah, yeah. Even though, I mean, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein in, I think, 1818. So that's 200 years. Dracula is barely 100 years mm. old, though. And most of the rest of these are younger than that. Yeah. So it's not like they do go back to their cultural unconscious. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, well, or maybe they are, and they just didn't hadn't taken these particular forms. I don't know. Candyman? How about Candyman? Is that a... <laughs> I think Candyman is a very... You've discussed being scared of Candyman before. A very particular cultural touchstone. Like, I don't know that he's as mainstream as Mm -hmm. a Frankenstein's monster or a Dracula. Um, It's partially both regional and cultural, so it's very... It feels very Chicago Mm -hmm. because it is... It was, you know... And it's urban, quote-unquote urban. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that... But yes, I mean, that 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 was a very frightening character. And it was... I would not argue that Candyman was a great film, but I think it's a very interesting idea for a horror character. Mm-hmm. This idea of this a black man from wasn't he like antebellum South or something like, and he was a like dating. He might have been a was he a slave? Was he a escape slave? And he was like dating the maybe he was like dating the plantation owner's daughter uh, or something, yeah, something like something that, like and that. they brutally murdered him. And yeah. so to take that very real trauma and horror of American slavery. And then say, what does that look like when we turn it into like a nightmare that lives in contemporary times? Right. And sort of bring, it's a it's a very interesting idea. Mm-hmm. And I think Jordan Peele is, is doing, doing a remake, a remake I thought, of I was it. Thinking, yeah. I thought I had heard something about that. Which should yeah. be interesting. But yeah, so I don't. I mean, Candyman is absolutely a phenomenal character. All I just right. don't know that he's as pervasive as right. the others. All right, let's talk about some of these other classic creatures here. And they, I mean, there were so many of these. Almost every one of those creatures I mentioned got a lot of sequels. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, it was Son of Frankenstein, Mother-in-Law of Frankenstein. <laughs> Third cousin twice removed to Frankenstein. And obviously diminishing returns. They were taken less and less seriously as Mm -hmm. time went on. We had all these sort of campy crossover movies. There's the shared universe thing. So it was Dracula meets the Wolfman, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. They all, I think, met Abbott and Costello at some point. There were those movies. So do you have a a Wolfman association of any kind? I do not. I think Benicio was a Wolfman in some film. I think that, yes, he did remake the Wolfman. But I did not see it. I didn't it. see that either. No. Uh, it was reportedly <laughs> not great. I, yeah, I didn't think it was. So, no, I have no Wolfman other than the You've terrible um, wolf in London. What the fuck is okay, that? That's a great movie. Nonsense. That's a fantastic movie. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Creature from the Black Lagoon. Nothing. Nothing, right? Nope. Invisible Man. Other than the Ralph Ellison novel, I have nothing. <laughs> Slightly different story, different take on the concept. Oh, there was that creepy ass uh, Kevin Bacon. Oh film. no! Oh god, that is such a bad it's, movie. That's just sketchy. Oh man! Just oof. That was a sleazy. That was. Gross it was it's a movie. gross. <laughs> It's just like, if I'm Good invisible, effects, I'm going to watch women, you know, take their clothes off and be creepy yeah. and pervy. So, yeah, it was. I think was, he did. I think he became a rapist. I think. That's, yes, yeah, I believe he did. He did movie, yes. Yeah. So that's my invisible man. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sort of looking forward to, uh, you know, visiting all of these with you. I won't be doing that. Oh, I think I think we will. Okay. And we're going a little out of order, I guess. I mean, technically, we should have probably done Dracula first, but who cares? Okay. 
Uh, for one thing, we need to watch Frankenstein so we can watch young Frankenstein one of these days. I have no interest in that. Oh, the fucking putting on the Ritz thing? <laughs> I don't want to. You find that much more humorous than I do. Here's a good test. If you show me a clip of the film and you're laughing hysterically and I'm just sitting there. I mean, there, that's out of context. Like, that's, you can't just, you can't just take probably, it out of context you know, like that. You got to watch the whole gonna, movie. No. Okay, again, I'll remind you, you liked Blazing Saddles. Because of Cleavon Little. Uh-huh. Okay. Let's talk about Frankenstein. Okay. It's alive. 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 Oh, in the name of God. Now I know what it feels like to be God. This was not the first film adaptation of Mary Shelley's novel. Thomas Edison's film company had made a 14-minute silent adaptation in 1910. Thief. <laughs> yeah, Edison was a big group. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. That was also called Frankenstein. You can find it on YouTube. I'll link to it in the show notes. They restored it a few years ago. It's worth watching. Actually, there's a really creepy... The creation of the monster scene in that movie mm-hmm. is really, really good. They basically made a puppet of the monster, set it on fire and burned it, and then ran the film backwards so it looks like it's nice. coming. It, yeah, it's a really cool effect. People should take a look at that. Uh, there was apparently another adaptation in 1915 entitled Life Without Soul. That's a lost film at this point. And a third Italian film in 1920 called Il Mostro di Frankenstein, which is also apparently lost, sadly. But then this obviously was the movie that secured Frankenstein and his monster in the cultural psyche. Mm -hmm. This was not based directly on the book, and in fact it's a very loose interpretation. It's based on a stage adaptation written by playwright Peggy Webling. Universal had already made Dracula with Bela Lugosi. Lugosi was originally slated to play the monster in this movie, uh, and then stories vary on why he didn't. Apparently he said he didn't want to be typecast, so he turned it down. He didn't want to do another horror movie right away. There are reports that they did a test of him in makeup, and people laughed, and and that Lugosi was fired off it. Whatever. So, director James Whale, British director, he had had a very successful stage play called Journey's End about World War One. He was hired to make the movie of that, and that's how he sort of transitioned to filmmaking. He was brought on to do Frankenstein, and he was the one who hired Boris Karloff, who was a, a total unknown. He was British-born, but he'd been an itinerant stage and screen actor in Canada and the U.S., He had actually made something like 80 movies before Hmm. he was hired to play the monster, but this was the movie that gave him his career. And it was a good career. He, He, I think he made something like 150 films in the course of his life. This movie obviously was a huge hit. I think it made something like $12 million, and that's 1931 money. That's gigantic. Right. The Universal then, of course, just kept making Frankenstein movies. They made three with Karloff, uh, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and Son of Frankenstein. And then without Karloff and with diminishing artistic returns, Ghost of Frankenstein, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, also including Frankenstein, (laughs) and Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. 
All told, counting other studios, Wikipedia lists more than 50 feature films featuring Frankenstein's monster, ranging from, you know, these two original films to 1957's juvenile delinquency flick, I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, uh, 1973's black exploitation flick, Blackenstein, mm. uh, something in 1990 called Frankenhooker. This, this idea Franken has been Hooker. Frankenhooker. Yes. Would you like to watch Frank and Hooker? I would not. No? No. I think we might be missing out here. I just, no. <laughs> so what do you actually know about this story? Do you feel like you know? I mean, that's the thing with these monsters. I feel like everybody, whether you've seen the movie or not, you feel like you've seen the movie. Well, I mean, the Frankenstein story is pretty well known. Mm-hmm. Mad doctor makes a monster. Monster finds out that human beings are assholes. <laughs> <laughs> succinct (laughs) but no i mean it's one of the great things about these monsters is that they are you know weirdly relatable because of the way that they experience humanity and whether that is cruelty or alienation Mm -hmm. um a looking for love in the case of frankenstein's monster that is not a new story um Mm -hmm. i think it what what makes it new is when you when you tell that story through the perspective of a quote-unquote monster right no, and I do, and I do think that accounts for a lot of the enduring appeal mm-hmm. of these of these creatures of these characters. There, I think there were very consciously outsider metaphors, yes. now, and this is something we should talk about with these two movies. And I think the general consensus is the subtext comes a little closer to the surface in the second one mm-hmm. than it does in the first one. But James Whale was openly gay at a time when most people were not. Yeah. And in fact, Colin Clive, who plays the doctor, Henry Frankenstein, in these two movies, was also gay or at least bisexual. And he was deeply closeted mm. and became a raging alcoholic and died mm. of tuberculosis at 37, had a, a rough life. Yeah, yeah. And there's been a lot written about the homosexual subtext in these movies and hmm. just just what you were just talking yeah. about, that sort of longing for acceptance, that kind of stuff. So we can sort of keep an eye out for that, I think, mm. as we watch these movies and as we talk about them. I haven't watched either of these movies in a long time. I didn't want to rewatch them. Sort of wanted to go back to them fresh to watch them with you this time. Mm-hmm. So what are, you, what are you expecting from these? Low budget effects. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I imagine they will be fun quaint quaint that sounds incredibly patronizing it does sound and i don't mean it to be patronizing so you're not expecting them to be scary i'm not expecting them to be scary okay no um are you expecting them to be good can't be good can't be good probably like school play good like what are your <laughs> what are you expecting from these i think better than school play good okay but definitely on the, the campier <laughs> side of things yes okay we shall see i guess All right, well, I think we should just go watch them, and I think we're going to watch them back-to-back. Okay. When we come back, we can talk about them separately. Okay, let's go watch them. All right. When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. To shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. Elizabeth! To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about. The spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein! Don't touch that! And we're back. 
During the break, Nikia and I watched Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, our creature double feature. Nikia, let's talk about these one at a time. I don't know about you. The second movie, to me, is the more interesting one. You know, we watched them back to back, and I had to go back to my notes to remember what happened in the first one. The second one had so thoroughly knocked it out of my mind. But let's let's try to talk about the first one, which I think is the simpler movie to discuss. What did you What did you make of Frankenstein? I mean, I agree with you. I think I definitely found Bride of Frankenstein to be the more interesting film. I think Frankenstein is a very efficient horror mm-hmm. film. I think the Frankenstein that I was familiar with based on just sort of cultural osmosis was less like the first film and more like the Bride of Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Oh, really? That's interesting. Why is that? Um, I don't know. I think maybe I'm basing it on the De Niro film where there's more interaction between him and other people okay. beyond Dr. Okay. Frankenstein. But I think that it is visually a very cool film, Mm. very sort of German expressionistic style. That opening sequence Mm -hmm. at the graveyard, it's really gorgeous. It's Mm -hmm. really dark. Mm -hmm. It's, It's sort of startlingly macabre. Yes. So we're opening on a cemetery and a funeral is sort of wrapping up and it is the creepiest cemetery you've ever seen in your life. (laughs) Everything seems to be on a menacing slant a little bit. The trees are creepily slanted and the tombstones and there are lots of crosses and there's a statue of death. Mm -hmm. And it's throughout both of these movies, the sets fascinate me Mm -hmm. because they're not convincing. No. And in fact, in the outside sequences, you can literally see the paint on the backdrops. Right. It's like it's rippled. So it looks like a canvas that hasn't been pulled tight enough. And yet somehow to me, they are thoroughly immersive. I don't I don't know how to describe it. They com- it completely works for me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel phony to me. It just feels sort of I mean, I think that the horror films and probably more so horror films of this time period have more license to be less technically perfect because it's more about how are you evoking an atmosphere and mm-hmm. a mood and it's almost designed to be sort of dreamlike and artificial. Sure. So I think that's why it may not detract so much as you would think it would. And that is the German expressionist thing where everything is designed to contribute to the mood mm-hmm. of the piece. Mm-hmm. And you're right, that is something that in, that horror does often. We talked about that in Suspiria. Yes. It had that same sort of artificiality to it, but the artificiality was all to a purpose of creating the mood. Um, anyway, I think it works brilliantly here. So the, the, funeral, the funeral clears out, and then we meet Dr. Frankenstein, Dr. Mm-hmm. Henry Frankenstein, played by uh, Colin Clive, <laughs> and his assistant, who is not... Despite how history remembers that character, it's not Igor. It is his name is Fritz. Yes, uh, I think there were characters in later Universal movies that were named Igor, but that's not. Anyway, this is Dwight Fry playing the assistant. But yeah, they've come out to do some grave robbing here. Like the body's literally just been put in the ground, and they're they're just gonna dig him up. Well, you want them when they're fresh. <laughs> It's kind of shocking even now, and I think for for 1931, all of this imagery was very shocking to mm-hmm. see on screen. Mm-hmm. This was a controversial movie. The censors had some problems with it. This is pre-code. This is pre-Hayes mm-hmm. code or pre-enforcement of the production code. So they, they got away with more here than they would have later. But it, yeah, it's just, it's a little, it's a little unsettling. They dig up the body, and then on their way back, they pick up a hanged man, which, again, is just dark. (laughs) 
Well, they can't use him because his neck's broken, so the brain is useless. Yeah, the, which doesn't make any sense because the brain they end up using is in a jar. Isn't that worse than a broken neck? The science, I don't know. It, doesn't, it doesn't pay to worry too much about the science on this. So let's talk about Frankenstein. Okay. He's, he's not exactly a hero. Mm, he is a complicated character. He is a man driven mad by ambition and by a desire to be God. Yeah. Not not very sympathetic, I would say. I mean, again, we, no. meet, we meet him grave robbing. Yes. No, I, I wasn't arguing that he was a sympathetic character. And there's, you know, there's supposed to be a love story at the center of this movie. And yet he doesn't actually seem to like his fiance very much or treat her very well. Mm-hmm. She shows up outside his it's not a castle. What is it? He's in like a windmill or something. Some sort He's lab, lab tower. In a, you know, pouring rain, thunderstorm, and he doesn't want to let her in. He's just like, leave me alone. I'm working. Mm-hmm. Not He's not, not a nice guy. He's singularly focused. Okay. <laughs> but I think Colin Clive does a really a great job with that character. One, his, he just looks like someone who is at the end of their rope. Well, he, he was a little bit, and particularly on the next movie... I, like I, I think I mentioned before, he was a chronic alcoholic. Mm. He was drinking a lot. It was hurting his career. And James Whale just decided to use that. Mm. And was, he looks unhinged. He looks like he's going a little bit crazy. And some of that was true. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it definitely works for the character. Okay, so I think I think in both of these movies we can we can talk about the love story, the relationship between Henry and Elizabeth. I, I don't have a lot of hope for this relationship. And she's also got this other guy hanging around, this supposed friend of Frankenstein's who seems awfully interested in in Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Victor, yes, he is waiting for uh, Frankenstein to die, I think, so that he can <laughs> step into the role of husband for Elizabeth. He's he's awfully attentive to her in, yes. in Frankenstein's absence. Well, he basically admits that he is in love with her and mm-hmm. she, you know, politely shows him the door, yeah. but... Okay, so meanwhile, Frankenstein and and Fritz are are building their building their body. The hanged man's brain was no good, so he sent Fritz off for for another one. Fritz has to break into the college, the medical college, where he's got two brains to choose from on the counter. Mm-hmm. Normal brain and a criminal brain. <laughs> right. Helpfully labeled. Helpfully labeled. Yes. <laughs> Normal brain, abnormal brain yeah. <laughs> of evil, horrible criminal, and he picks the right brain, but then. Fritz is a little jumpy. Fritz is surprisingly kind of a scaredy cat. And I think some thunder claps or something, and he's startled, and he drops the good brain and then just substitutes the the bad brain. Yeah. So, again, we're just not a promising start we're off to here with this experiment. No, well, and it's the importance of, you know, having good staff on hand is really important. You always say that. Well, because here, again... Know your crew. It, it, have it, the right it, it crew. bears out that, you know, the wrong person sent to do the wrong task fucks everything up. Mm-hmm. Fritz is actually a problem throughout this movie. Yeah, Fritz is... Un- until he isn't, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Elizabeth and Victor, they've enlisted Henry's old professor, Professor Waldman, to come and try to talk Henry out of his insanity. They all show up at the castle on the night of the big, the big experiment. Mm-hmm. And again, he doesn't want to let them in at all. He finally does. And then we get, I think, one of the most memorable sequences. This is the... the it's Alive. The It's Alive sequence, yes. yes. With the, the famous mad scientist raising the platform up to the thunderstorm, etc. That's been imitated a million times in a million things. Mm-hmm. And it is alive. 
And Henry says, now I know what it feels like to be God. Yes. Which was one of the lines the censors had a lot of trouble with. I would not be surprised. And in fact, apparently copies of this uh, for a long time had that line either cut out or drummed out with an extra thunderclap to cover the blasphemy Mm -hmm. because that was not, not okay. Yeah, so Elizabeth and Victor go home because everything is fine. Um, but the professor stays behind to sort of help uh, Dr. Frankenstein with his work. And we get what I think to be one of the more powerful visuals of the film, which is when Frankenstein is sort of reaching up towards the sky when he sees daylight for the first time. Oh, the, the monsters. Sorry. Yes. yes the monsters. <laughs> Frankenstein's monster. Uh, yeah, this is our first. I think yeah. that's our first view of him, right? I think so. Yes. Because he and he and Waldman, Frankenstein and Waldman are in the lab and they hear the footsteps. First, we just hear the footsteps coming. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's our first glimpse of the monster is when he enters and. And yeah, Frankenstein says, I've kept him in darkness up until now. Mm-hmm. And now there he opens like the skylight, I guess, basically, or he opens I so, the window, yeah. lets, lets the light in. And then there's that scene you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's just a really beautiful moment of him, the duality of him being so sort of childlike and innocent, but also really aggressive and animalistic. And that's probably one of the first times that we become sympathetic to the monster mm-hmm. but that doesn't last long because it doesn't take much time for them to chain frankenstein in a dungeon and fritz starts to torture him with fire and whips. yeah i mean i i'm sympathetic to him all through yeah i don't i never lose sympathy for the monster mm-hmm. because yeah he's none of it's his fault right and they discover he's afraid of fire mm-hmm. that's the first thing that sort of sets him off that he gets a little unruly because he's scared of fire and i don't remember what happens he kind of i guess he's reeling around and they sort of hit him and tie him up to control him and that's when they take him and chain him up in the dungeon Mm -hmm. and then yeah fucking fritz is just straight out torturing him with fire right taunting him and the monster is just screaming it's really kind of awful yeah it's really kind of horrible and quite understandably justifiably i think the monster kills fritz which we don't see because i know that i was a little bit confused because mm. like did he kill because all of a sudden fritz was just gone yeah that may have been an appease the censors thing too is mm-hmm. that I, I mean most of the violence does happen a little ambiguously or mm-hmm. off screen in these movies but yeah i think we just see fritz hanging from something or i don't remember i don't what even we think see. we see that i don't remember ever seeing a body again i think we do see his body oh. but we don't see him actually killed and then that's it. And then they give up on the monster. Yeah. Waldman's then like, okay, well, kill it like you would any other savage wild animal. savage animal. Yeah. And I didn't, this is the point at which I'm like, what was the plan here? Like, okay, you wanted to create life. You wanted to create this being. What was the plan for what happened next? Was there no plan for education, for assimilation? What were you going to do with this being? I mean, I think that was the plan. Because um, they don't give him much of a chance before deciding no. they're just going to kill him. No. I mean, babies are unruly, too. Babies don't kill Fritz. <laughs> well, they would <laughs> if they could, though. Yeah, no, it doesn't take them long before they realize that this is another failed experiment. And that it would be easier to just dispose of the monster than it would be to try to salvage anything there. He's deemed irredeemable. It seems really quick to me, that mm-hmm. decision. But yeah, so they're going to, right, so they they decide they're going to kill him. I don't remember, how does Waldman, because somehow Waldman ends up doing that alone, right? 
Yes. Uh, Frankenstein goes back home, and then the professor stays behind and is basically like, okay, I'm going to like euthanize him and then dissect him, and it'll be fine. Oh, doesn't... I think the monster attacks Henry, strangle, hurts him or something, and then Henry's recuperating. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right, okay. So then, yes, then Waldman is, is going to take care of things, and he's, he's got him on a table. He's going to dissect him. Mm-hmm. The monster wakes up, and that goes sort of how we could predict yeah. that it would go. So let me ask you, did you... You said you weren't expecting either of these movies to be scary. Did you find any of them at any point scary? No. 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 Did you see how they could be Mm. to movie-going audiences of the early 30s? Sure, I guess I could. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always hard to sort of look back at films like this because they seem... A little crude, like the Frankenstein makeup is. It's. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's not bad. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's. I mean, it's become iconic, right? So deservedly but, iconic. Yes, but it it's a little rough around the edges. Well, it's um, primitive. It is primitive. Certainly, yes, because it was basically Kleenex and clay yes. and a bunch of stuff. But I will say that Karloff is able to emote through all of that, mm-hmm. and his eyes are quite powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it helps to humanize the monster, and it also helps with our connection to the monster. Um, and if there's anything that is scary or eerie or affecting, it would be the, his eyes, I think. Mm. Okay. I do think, like I said, this. I think the sets are very effective. I think the cinematography is very evocative and very menacing. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the cinematographer with was Arthur Edison. This is a, this is a guy with a career. You haven't seen a, a lot of these movies, but Robin Hood, The Thief of Baghdad, All Quiet on the Western Front, The Lost World, Frankenstein, Invisible Man, Mutiny on the Bounty, The Maltese Falcon, and Casablanca. He mm. was the cinematographer for. That's a lot of. Mm-hmm. Pretty classic black and white cinematography. So yeah, I think it's spooky. And again, I can imagine that audiences who had never seen this sort of thing mm-hmm. on screen before would have found it scary just just for that. Just yeah. for. I mean, yeah, I think I would probably say it's for me at least it was more sort of atmospheric, mm-hmm. and so it's like similar to what we saw with the Innocence. Mm-hmm. And what was the other film where I like the Catherine Zeta-Jones version? Yes, The Haunting. Yeah, so more in that. You don't like the Catherine Zeta-Jones version. I do. not possibly like the Catherine Zeta-Jones <laughs> version. Um, so it's more along those lines of just like it's a, it's right. a mood more than it is actually scary. Okay. Like it's about the architecture and it's no, about the, the play of shadow <laughs> yeah. and yeah. Okay. One element, I don't know if you noticed, to me it it works both ways. It makes it both less scary and more scary in places. There is no musical score in Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. So the scenes all play out very quietly. Mm -hmm. And you can see the difference because I think in Bride of Frankenstein, we have this great Franz Waxman score. Having music or not having music in a scene makes a huge difference to controlling the mood of the scene, to making it more sort of emotionally dynamic. Yes. I do think Frankenstein is feels much more stagey. It feels a little less cinematic mm-hmm. than the second movie. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't notice the absence of music in Frankenstein, but I did notice the score in Bride of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so where are we? So the monster killed Dr. Waldman, mm-hmm. who was trying to dissect him. Actually, trying to dissect him alive, which that's not cool. No. And meanwhile, Henry and Elizabeth are back wherever they are, discussing their upcoming wedding. Well, it's their wedding day when we get back to them. 
Is it? Okay. Yeah. And meanwhile, the, the monster is just kind of roaming the countryside, meeting people. Yeah. Comes across a little girl. He makes a friend. Who has never heard of Stranger Danger. <laughs> uh, and again, we get to this sort of childlike innocence. And so they mm-hmm. relate to each other in a weird way. They do. She she sort of sees him as a playmate and is not, you know, immediately frightened by his appearance. Yeah. And she shows him how to toss daisies into and the And he smiles. Into the the monster, this is the first time we see the monster smile. Yes. And he's having fun. And he's met someone who doesn't hate him and isn't afraid of him and isn't mean to him. Mm-hmm. And they sit there and they're playing flowers at the side of the river. Mm-hmm. And she's throwing the flowers in and the flowers float. Yay. <laughs> And then the monster runs out of flowers. And so he throws a little girl in the river. Because obviously she would also float, except that she doesn't. She drowns. Were you ex- Had you heard of this scene? Were you I expecting had not, this scene? No, no I okay. had never heard of the scene. And again, this was another death that felt very perfunctory. It was just like she was there and then she was gone. Well, again, I think that's just not dwelling on the yeah. violence. And in fact, the censors at one point had them take out the scene where he picks her up and throws her in the water. Mm-hmm. So the, in that version, he just starts reaching for her mm-hmm. and then it cuts away. Mm-hmm. And then we don't see her again until the dad is walking through the town. Uh-huh. Carrying her dead body. And it's like, that made it worse. <laughs> because then it's like, what did that monster do to her? Right. We don't even know. Right. Did he rape her? Did he pull her apart? We have no idea what the monster did to her. So mm-hmm. that there are a couple instances that come up in these movies of the censors actually making things worse than they were <laughs> originally. And that was one of them. But yeah, that's that's a sad little scene. It is. It is. It's quite sad. Because you know that he did not mean to hurt that little yeah. girl. Um, and so it breaks your heart a little bit of just like he doesn't realize his own strength he doesn't realize what it means when you know that a flower floats but this little girl may actually not she's going to drown and so i think he for me he evokes all sorts of other characters throughout literature and movies i mean he's he's a little lenny and Mm. a mice and men Mm -hmm. give me the rabbit lenny yeah He's a little Boo Radley. He is very Boo Radley. Yeah. It's a weirdly touching performance and presentation. And then you're right. Okay, so then we're at the, we're at the wedding, right? There's mm-hmm. a big wedding festival going on and the village is having their folk dancing and everything in celebration of of Henry and Elizabeth's wedding. And here this is a good this is where it's most noticeable to me, so it's as good a place to mention. Let me ask you a question. When does this movie take place? Uh, okay, so the the book was written in 1818. Right. The movie was made in 1931. When, if anywhere along that spectrum, does this movie take place? Looking at the fashion, I would say 20s, early 30s. Mo- modern, yeah, contemporary yeah, age, yeah. right. <laughs> looking at the folk costumes of the people in the village, mm-hmm. looking at the technology, mm. it's it's. It's a weird, and I think this was intentional, it's weirdly removed from time. Yeah. The fashion is very contemporary. It's all 20s and 30s. But when they wanted to go 19th century, they just went 19th century and acted like that was normal. Mm -hmm. It sort of exists out of history somehow. Mm Mm-hmm. But anyway, those those scenes, to me, it's very stark because all the villagers seem like they're from 200 years earlier than Henry and Elizabeth and, and those people. Well, to be fair, they look like those people in that crappy movie you made me watch, which was contemporary, wasn't it, for the time? The Maypole You're bullshit. <laughs> the Wicker Man. Yeah. What year was that supposed classic? to be? The Wicker Man. Yeah. That was the early 70s. So it looks like that, okay. except in black and white. All right. And th- through the festivities comes... Maria's father carrying her body. Yes. 
which he somehow knows the monster killed her right i'm not sure how he knows that nobody seemed to have seen that happen and yet he knows not only that she was murdered but who murdered her Mm -hmm. and then we get the angry mob assembling to go chase the monster yes the town of torches and sticks Mm -hmm. always at the ready (laughs) so they chase him through the village and into the mountains and eventually chase him into this windmill, Mm -hmm. I believe it is. And he has dragged Dr. Frankenstein into the windmill with him and, you know, roughs him up pretty good and then tosses him over the ledge of the windmill. That's a startling scene. Well, because his body just sort of hits one of the blades. He looks dead. He bounces. Yeah, it's pretty. He hurls hurls him from the top of the windmill and his body kind of hits the blade of the the windmill and just kind of lays there limp over it and then falls off mm-hmm. he should have been dead really but he was and then the villagers burned the windmill with the monster inside which again is just another horrible horrible scene yeah the monster is just burning to death inside this thing and screaming mm-hmm. i mean i my sympathies were entirely with the monster through this entire movie well because he didn't ask to be made and he was made and then thrown into a world that was not prepared to receive him and that was cruel to people that are different or things that are different so so is it even a horror movie it's a tragedy with horror elements right yeah i mean we call him the monster but you could easily say that you know (laughs) the monster is the monster is inside (laughs) so i think it's a tragedy i think it's a little bit of a um something about teaching us like not to try to be god or something like that but yeah i get why it's horror but it's it's more sad Mm -hmm. um so we talked when we started about the way these stories have entered the, the cultural consciousness, whether you've actually seen the movie or not. Was this what you were expecting? Was it different than what you had expected when you imagined the Frankenstein story? It, I mean, for the most part, it was what I expected. I think, as I said, uh, sort of when we first started, the Frankenstein that I'm familiar with is the one that has more interactions with the people in the village. So coming up upon the blind man and that sort of thing mm-hmm. and becoming more aware of who he is and how he was made and what that means. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for the most part, this is this is the Frankenstein that I, that I know. Do you know who Henry Frankenstein is and who you are? Yes, I know. Made me from dead. I love dead. Hate living. You're wise in your generation. We must have a long talk, and then I have an important call to make. Woman. Friend. Why? Okay, well, let's move on to talking about Bride of Frankenstein. Okay. Which is, in every way, a weirder movie. Yes. Delightfully so, I think. But what did you, what did you make of it? I really enjoyed Bride of Frankenstein. I think I was expecting more of the bride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for a character that iconic, she's on screen for about three yeah, minutes. Yeah, it's a I very think. short. <laughs> so I don't know if she shows up later. I don't think so, actually. But yes, yeah, so I I think that's the only thing that I I was expecting was that it would be more about their journey mm-hmm. together. Uh, you can, if you want, go watch the '80s movie, The Bride. 
Hyde mm-hmm. with Sting as Dr. Frankenstein and Jennifer Beale as the bride. Oh, dear. That doesn't sound good. No, it's not good. It's really, really <laughs> bad. <laughs> It's so bad. I'm a little surprised you haven't actually seen that one. Yeah, I usually see the shitty shit. Yeah. Um, but no, I have. I haven't. I didn't even know that was a thing that existed. Okay, so this one we start out actually with this little prologue with Mary Shelley. Yes. And Percy Bysshe Shelley and uh, Lord, Byron. Lord Byron. The story is that they were all together telling stories, and that's how Mary Shelley originally came up with Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. But it's a weird prologue, and that is Elsa Lanchester as Mary Shelley, who also plays the bride. Mm-hmm. And it's an excuse to recap the first movie, which is clever. Yes. But it's also, I think, subtly setting up some of these subversive themes of this movie. Hmm. How so? Not to put too fine a point on it, Percy and Byron are both very gay. And there is this just the subtle suggestion that there is something slightly amoral and subversive going on with this little threesome. Mm-hmm. It's still there in the finished movie, but there were some lines that were cut by the censors, including... Apparently, Mary Shelley said in the original, we are all three infidels, scoffers at all marriage ties, believing only in living freely and fully. So, sort of a little suggestion that they were kind of a little... Swinger. Little swinging threesome Mm -hmm. here. Mm Mm-hmm. But she does, too. She reiterates the lesson from the first story, which is the punishment for mortal men who dare to emulate God. Mm Mm-hmm. And then she picks up where that story left off. And... The movie, Whale didn't want to make a sequel. Hmm. He, he thought they'd pretty much milked it dry with the first well, movie. Well, everybody died. So it was what it was. Right. <laughs> but then, of course, it was a huge hit. The next movie he made for Universal, The Invisible Man, was a huge hit. The studio wanted him to make a sequel mm-hmm. to, to Frankenstein. And they pro- they got him to do it by promising him other films that he did want to make that he would get to make. And they gave him pretty free reign on this one. Which is, I think, why it is the more interesting movie and why I think there's it's a, the weirder movie. It was originally titled The Return of Frankenstein. They went through several writers, several ideas, several treatments, most of which sucked and Whale rejected them. And then they finally settled on this story, which is using a lot of elements that had been in the original novel that they didn't use in the first film. The whole idea of the creature wanting a bride is from the novel. The blind man is from the novel. Stuff like that was was all stuff that just didn't get into the first film. So yeah, so then we pick up we pick up where the first film ended with what we would now say are some continuity errors. At the time, nobody cared about such things very much. There was there was no home video. There was no DVDs. There was no internet. Nobody expected people to really remember that much of what happened in the first movie <laughs> that they were going to complain. But we have different actors in the second movie. We have a different Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. We have a different Burgermaster. Uh, Maria's father is different. Like there's all these the same characters. They're just played by completely different actors with no explanation. There's other stuff like Henry's father had been in the first movie, and then in the second movie, everyone is suddenly talk, calling him Baron Frankenstein and referencing the fact that his father just died. Yes. Even, even though there's only about 10 minutes between the first right, movie and the right. second movie. When his father died and he inherited the title, we have no idea. Uh, so there's stuff like that, but again, nobody cared. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, so then we, we we start, we pick up right there at the fire at the mill. Yeah, so the little girl's parents are sort of searching the ruins of the burned down mill because her father is basically like, I need to see that he, that the monster is actually dead. That, of course, proves to be a bad idea. And he, like, falls down into the mill into, like, a well or something. <laughs> yeah. I'm not quite sure about the... the right, he crashes yeah. through the floor and ends up in water yeah. down in the basement. Uh, and then we get the shot of, we just see sort of the hand, the monster's hand sort of creep around the corner of one of the wooden beams. Um, and then he proceeds to drown the father. Yeah, just like he did the daughter. Pretty immediately. <laughs> Which, fair enough. And then the wife is up there sort of looking for her husband and calling after her husband. And she reaches down to grab the hand of what she, who she who thinks she, is yeah, her husband. that's great. But it's the monster. And then he, you know, disposes with her pretty quickly. He kills her too, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. That that whole family did not come out well from their encounter with the creature. Uh, It's in this scene that we also meet Minnie. I hate Minnie. Yeah, you you took an instant dislike to Minnie. I don't like people that this are is... so clearly comic relief. Yeah. That the... <laughs> feel just sort of shoved in because you feel like you need some levity or something. Mm-hmm. And her voice is just... Yeah, that's exactly what she was. That's Una O'Connor. She was a character actress. Whale had used her in Invisible Man, playing the same kind of character. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of character she played. And she was just comic relief. I agree. She's pretty annoying. Yeah. We meet the new Elizabeth, played by Valerie Hobson. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mae Clark was not well. She'd been hospitalized, so she was unable to continue the role. Between you and me, I think was a slight improvement. I wasn't crazy about the Elizabeth in the first movie. Neither of them are given a whole lot to do. Well, no. No. Um, Other than to have sort of brief moments of steeliness and resolve, and then longer moments of just hysteria. (laughs) So... But they bring her what they think, they think they are bringing her Henry's body. Yes. And then Henry wakes up. Right. And as he's recovering, we get a scene where he, he's feeling very guilty about having created the monster. He says he's learned his lesson. He never should have done it. He feels really bad about how all it worked out. And then over the course of that scene, over about 45 seconds, he's already talking himself into doing it again. Yeah. He's talking about how, oh, I could have trained him to do my will. His guilt does not last very long. His resolve does not last very long. Mm -hmm. He's already, if not planning, certainly open to the idea of doing it again. And then right on cue, we meet Dr. Pretorius. Yes. Played by Ernest Thesiger. Talk to me about Dr. Pretorius. That's a weird-ass character. (laughs) (laughs) He's pretty much archetype gothic character. Mm. And I think... His introduction takes what had been sort of subtext and makes it text in terms of themes around sort of homosexuality and sort of quote-unquote transgressive behavior, what would have been considered transgressive behavior at that time. I think many... He's a big old queen. He's a big old queen. You don't need to tiptoe around it. He is a big old queen. Fabulous cape. Flaming. Um, But I think Minnie even introduces him and says, some queer-looking gentleman... Yes, she does. uh, ...is here to see you. And so, again, it's just like, okay, now we're just going to say it. And there's a lot of innuendo like that throughout the dialogue. At one point, he says something to Henry about, you and I can probe the mysteries. There's all sorts of stuff like that. A little too excited to be smoking cigars. Like, there's some... <laughs> where it's just like, okay, I guess we're just going to go ahead and do this. Yeah. Um, and not be subtle and, and, and nuanced about it. Yeah. The censors missed all of that completely, by mm. the way. They had their objections to this. They objected to... Mary Shelley's cleavage in the opening scene. (laughs) 
they objected to sort of longing shots of the bride's body before she was animated because it's like oh that's mm. necrophilia mm-hmm. and stuff like that mm-hmm. they completely missed the gay stuff yeah and gay characters and gay coded characters like pretorius were against the production code mm-hmm. they they just missed it yeah i don't know how i mean no he's pretty clearly coded he's very clearly coded and so he shows up in the marital bedroom of elizabeth <laughs> interrupts their wedding and night. henry and says i need to speak with you in private yeah so again when we you know the first movie we had henry pushing elizabeth to the side in the name of his work mm-hmm. and so uh, it was a little bit more subtle right and now here we have henry pushing elizabeth to the side for this other man right like you said it was the day after they got right. engaged he went off to right. with fritz to go make this monster mm-hmm. Now, on the day they got married, Mm -hmm. the wedding night, before the marriage is even consummated, we have Dr. Pretorius show up to say, hey, let's, you and I go make a baby. Right. Yeah. The subtext is not buried very deeply here. And he, Pretorius also clearly hates Elizabeth, too. He's very disdainful of her in every one of their, their scenes together. Well, because she's fucking up the relationship he's trying to have. Yeah. Okay, so Pretorius has also been making his own... He's had his own experiments at making life. Mm-hmm. He's made tiny little people in jars. Yeah, it's pretty weird. <laughs> yeah, so he, inst- you know, whereas Henry took the route of resurrect- resurrecting dead flesh, Pretorius has tried to create life from life. Um, and so uses seaweed or seeds or something. I, yeah, I do not understand he, he the science He says he grows here. his body's, like, cultures. I'm very like, confused about the science. Right, he grows um, them. And somehow grows a mermaid, which is not a thing. So I don't, it's odd. Uh, But yeah, so he keeps these sort of miniature human beings in jars and they are costumed to play to roles. So there's Mm -hmm. a little queen and a little Henry VIII and an archbishop and a ballerina and... I think a devil character. A devil character and a mermaid. And a mermaid. I, yeah. It's an odd collection of, of things. Um, but he, you know, realizes the limit of his science. He can only make jar-sized people. And he'd like to make <laughs> people-sized people. So Okay. And meanwhile, the monster. Where is the monster? The monster is just, again, just wandering the woods, right? Yeah. So he comes to another lake, which those are not good places for him, mm-hmm. um, where he sees his reflection in the water and, and sort of gets angry about it and and very good and then he sees a very beautiful um what the fuck are they called shepherdess shepherdess Mm. (laughs) and herder yeah and she freaks out of course and falls into the water and him learning a lesson says oh she's gonna drown and so he he rescues her from the water he's become a superhero except not quite (laughs) um because she's still freaking the fuck out about it and she's like please leave me alone and her screams attract the townspeople who again always have torches and sticks on hand (laughs) yeah you commented on how how many sticks they are supplied (laughs) that is and there it's always at the ready no one else ever has to say where is my torch somebody's gonna need to cut us some some torches no they they've got all the torches, always sticks, and hose that they need always to chase the, the monster. So they find him, and they sort of lash him to this wooden post, and it becomes this very sort of reminiscent of the, the crucifix. Mm-hmm. And they take him, and they chain him to a chair in, a, in like a cell. That Christ-like imagery of him mm-hmm. on the cross is very deliberate, mm-hmm. and we get it several times throughout the movie of making that association, um, which is 
troubling, I guess, when you think. I mean, because you've got the whole resurrection of Christ mm-hmm. thing. You've got mm-hmm. this monster resurrected from the dead that Whale is, is making that connection very deliberately. I love when they get the the monster chained up in the cell. Mm-hmm. The burgomaster, the, the town official, is there. And he's saying stuff like... We can't spend all day on this. No, he's very chill about it. He says, "He says I've got to get back to my more important duties. You have a reanimated corpse who has been roaming the countryside, killing people. Mm-hmm. What exactly on your agenda for the day was more important than that? We got other stuff to do. <laughs> we got, you know, you've got a village of about thirty-seven people. What else is happening today that's more important than the reanimated corpse that's been killing people?" Gotta make more torches. <laughs> gotta, I got stuff to do. We've fallen really behind on our torch fallen production. Way behind. <laughs> but yeah, so they take about two seconds to chain him up. Don't really double check anything. And yeah, they think no. it's gonna be fine. And he, of course, breaks out immediately. Yeah. And goes back to terrorizing the village. Um, and seems to cover a lot of ground in a little amount of time. Mm. So that was obviously a, a bigger problem than the Burgermeister. <laughs> Uh, assumed that it would be. He comes across a family at this campsite. Mm -hmm. A Romani family. And uh, they are roasting some dead animal uh, on the fire. Smells good to him, whatever it is. Here's the thing, though. Yeah. So the, I'm assuming the grandmother of the family, I think she is or something, uh, the elder, uh, is like, where's the pepper and salt? And this is, you know, quite possibly the first cinematic uh, recognition that white people fail to season their meat. <laughs> and I think it's important that we note that. It's it's on record. So. Do you think that was the message of that I scene? I think it was. I think the message was season Because you don't put salt and pepper on after you cook. No. Like, this chicken obviously was not seasoned before it was cooked. And now we got to add it later. Because white people don't season their meat. I don't know what that's about. But it gets you killed. That's the lesson. Unseasoned meat will get you killed. I, I have to, I have to admit that that flew right over. I my mean, head it's it's it's, it's as subtle as the sort of homosexuality stuff, but it's really important. <laughs> okay, yeah. So then after his little misunderstanding with that family, and I just have to say, as much as my sympathy is with the monster, mm-hmm. and it is completely, I do think when you begin every encounter with new people you meet by saying. You sort of have to expect to be misunderstood. He can't talk. Well, still, you could just you sort of temper your your tone a little bit. So now you're tone policing Frankenstein <laughs> or Frankenstein's monster. The thing is, he actually learns to do that a you little later is. in the movie. This is you saying, "Oh, you come to this country, you need to learn how to speak English." That's what you just did. No, I, that That's is what not what did. I just did. That's no, what you just did. No, that is not what I That's said. That's what you just did. No. What I said is, you catch more flies with honey Uh than you do with Uh tearing arms off. He doesn't start tearing arms off until people start coming at him with torches. (laughs) So he leaves that little family, and he follows some music he hears. And here we have what is, to me, the centerpiece of this movie. Mm -hmm. The encounter with the blind hermit. Talk to me about this scene. You know, the monster hears the sound of a violin playing, and he follows it to the sort of small home of um, a blind man. And 
The man invites the monster into his home and is immediately welcoming and trusting mm-hmm. and excited at the thought of having someone around because no one has been to his home in such a long time and he's been sort of alone. And then they find, he, he finds sort of kinship with the monster and saying, you know, I cannot see and you cannot speak. So we were somehow sort of meant to be friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and he thanks God that, you know, he brought him a friend after all this time because he'd been so lonely. So yeah, it's a really, tender and soft moment after what has been a lot of violence Mm -hmm. on the part of the monster and he responds in kind so if someone is welcoming and treats him as a friend he he can respond to that he becomes very sweet and very gentle yeah it's really interesting for one thing i think you know we talk about all the the christian imagery Mm -hmm. throughout the movie Mm -hmm. i think that's the only really christian character we meet Mm -hmm. it's very much all about hospitality and kindness and forgiveness he assumes that whoever this guy is is probably on the run he doesn't care why he says you don't have to tell me about it if you don't want to come in let me help you i'm lonely you're lonely let's be friends Mm -hmm. it's really sweet he teaches the monster how to speak for the first time, mm-hmm. which is something that Henry didn't try to do. No, and it uh, apparently happened in like a day. Yeah, it was, no. <laughs> it was very quick. He gives the monster his bed. Mm-hmm. He's praying over him as he's sleeping. He even teaches him about fire. He teaches him that there's good fire and bad fire, mm-hmm. and you don't always have to be afraid of fire. Like, it's this is the exact right person that the monster needed to meet. He's found a place in the world. Yeah. And then the outside world interferes. Yes. Because two local yokels with guns come wandering by lost and say, that's the monster and attack him. And he ends up like burning the cabin down Mm -hmm. as he escapes. Again, it's it's another little tragedy. It is. And it's, you know, reinforcing a message that, you know, man is bad. Mm hmm. And here I want to come back to the the subtext mm-hmm. of this film. This is Gary Morris writing at Bright Lights Film Journal in an article entitled Sexual Subversion, The Bride of Frankenstein. Whale's campy masterpiece almost demands to be treated as one of the historical high watermarks of sexual subversion. The Bride can be read from a modern perspective as a homosexual joke on the heterosexual community's whale, a gay man, served and benefited from. His masters at Universal and the mass audience to whom he could present unconventional images and ideas and see them unknowingly endorsed and approved in the most direct way possible from the moviegoer's pocketbook. And he talks about the images and the scenes throughout the movie that are clearly rich in in homosexual subtext, and we've talked about some Mm -hmm, of them. mm -hmm. The sort of bisexual threesome of the Shelleys with Lord Byron, Pretorius interrupting their wedding night to say, let's we two men go make life together. And then he says, the only loving domestic relationship in the film is the monster and the blind hermit. Hmm. He says, make no mistake, this is a marriage and a viable one. But Whale reminds us quickly that society does not approve. The monster, the outsider, is driven from his scene of domestic pleasure by two gun-toting rubes who happen upon this startling alliance and quickly instinctively proceed to destroy it. I think that's a that's a really interesting reading of this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, especially if you then overlay that with the, the really heavy Christian overtones of mm-hmm. it, because then it seems like the film is saying, consciously or unconsciously saying, that this same-sex relationship is somehow consecrated by God mm-hmm. and is a gift from God because the, the, the blind man receives the monster as a gift from God, yep. which is really interesting. So that's an interesting way to read that scene. In this movie, made 85 years ago right (laughs) 
and I and I think I mentioned at the top, James Whale was pretty openly gay, mm-hmm. and he lived with his longtime companion, David Lewis. It was not a secret. He didn't keep it a secret. It probably hurt his career. He started getting fewer and fewer offers, and he eventually just retired from, from making movies altogether, but... Yeah, to me, that's what this movie's about. I don't mm. even think it's. I don't even think it's a an interpretation. I think it's clearly there, mm-hmm. and I think you're right. I think it's there's no real love between Henry and Elizabeth. That is the only tender scene we have in in either of these two movies. Mm-hmm. Is the monster with that hermit? Mm. And if the outside world had just left them alone, they would have been very happy together. They would have lived happily ever after. And there's this was another one of those things I was thinking of earlier when I said that the censors in some ways made things more complicated. They apparently objected to the use of the word mate in reference to the bride Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And so they substituted in the word friend. Like, oh, we're going to make a friend for you. Mm -hmm. But the monster throughout the movie uses friend interchangeably with male and female characters. He and the hermit, friend. When he meets Pretorius, it's friend. Mm -hmm. When he meets the bride, it's friend. Everybody's a friend. So again, it's sort of this holistic view of of love Mm -hmm. that, you know, certainly was not what the censors intended to (laughs) intensify, but that was the effect Hmm. of their meddling with the script. Okay, and then, so he flees, he's lost his little idyllic situation there, he flees from that, he's running through yet another scary, overgrown graveyard. Here again, there's a big scary Christ crucifix looming in that set, Mm -hmm. and right under that, he climbs into a crypt to hide, and goes down into the crypt, and that's where he meets Pretorius, who's there with couple of grave robbers including the guy who played fritz in the first movie playing yet another lecherous horrible assistant <laughs> typecast here mm-hmm. yeah and here we have it's it's almost a parody of the the scene with the blind hermit because it hits a lot of the same beats but pretorius is evil predatory yeah. right because he gives him drink and food and smoke mm-hmm. everything that the hermit did but he is not a loving man no yeah so pretorius is there to steal the body of a young woman so that he can make a friend for the monster um and he and the monster engage in a really interesting exchange where we i think we hear more from the monster than we've heard from him mm-hmm. yet and he says what te- what is actually a really profound thing which is you know i love dead i hate living yes. which again shows you that what he's been taught in his interactions with humans is the living is the problem the dead right. are not the problem right. and then this is where we get him saying you know woman friend wife yes he asks pretorius you make man like me mm-hmm. and pretorius says no i'm gonna make a, a woman for you Mm -hmm. and he is processing that woman friend wife Mm -hmm. imagining that but henry doesn't want to do that frankenstein doesn't want to make another monster no and that's actually a really cool scene of you know pretorius goes back to to henry's home and again elizabeth is cock blocking but you know pretorius gets in to talk to henry and he's like you know this is i found the body and i just need your help sort of finishing it off and he says, I have someone here who could probably persuade you into helping me. And he brings the monster into the room. And I think this is the first time that Henry has seen the monster since the windmill burned mm-hmm. down. Yep. And the monster calls him Frankenstein. And so he hears his creation call him yes. by name for the first time and can sort of see what he has become. Mm-hmm. He's still not convinced. And so the monster kidnaps Elizabeth and takes her off to some cave. And so Frankenstein is basically blackmailed into helping Pretorius in right. order to save Elizabeth. Right. And there was apparently a version of this script originally in which it was Elizabeth's heart 
that ended up mm. in The Bride. I don't know why they changed that exactly, but what happens is they send... It's not Fritz. <laughs> it's but the guy who was Fritz. They send him out to, to go steal another heart from a body somewhere, and he just straight up murders yeah. a girl passing on the street. Well, you sent a murderer to get a heart. Just so. for convenience. Like, eh, I'm not going to go all the way to the That's hospital. I'm just, you know, yeah. going to... Pick one here. There was also apparently a scene that was cut out of one of these characters murdering their uncle or something and then blaming it on the monster. Again, just hitting the general theme of people suck. Mm-hmm. Human beings are awful. Yeah. So yeah, they uh, they make the they make the bride. We get a very long, more elaborate, really beautifully filmed sequence mm-hmm. of the lab uh, bringing the creature to life. It's really nicely done. Mm-hmm. And then once again, it's alive. <laughs> And we meet the bride. We do meet the bride. Played by Elsa Lanchester in the most memorable two minutes of screen time any actress ever had. I think that that whole last sequence, it's maybe ten minutes long, but is probably the best sequence out of both films. Mm -hmm. And it is just the cinematography there is great. The play of light and shadow is great. The, The angling, the really extreme angles are great. But then when she is awakened... She is such a, even more so than the monster, Mm. she is such an alien presence. Yeah. And where Karloff has been sort of lumbering and bulky and, and ungraceful. Yeah. She is elegant and bird like and robotic and almost dancer like, even in her stumbling. Right. Yeah, she's like a newborn deer. Yes. She's long-legged. Very she's, much. So she is a little clumsy, but she does have a certain grace There's to her. There's an elegance to her. Yeah. Um, and it's funny you say bird-like, because that's what she said. Mm. That's what she said. Elsa Lanchester said she based that performance on swans. Mm. And she said, they're beautiful, but they're really nasty yes. things. They, like, hiss at you, and yes. they will attack you. And that's her vocalizations. Amazing. Are like this per- this fucking performance is so good <laughs> and it's just a few minutes. It really is. To say nothing of her gown, which is very Margella and very <laughs> Rick Owens, and I love it. Um, I, see, I wouldn't have thought you'd get a chance to comment on the fashion in this movie. But, she's a, she just looks you like the hairdo, stunning. Well, it's it's a whole look. Like you have to have the whole look. <laughs> I could see Tilda um, doing that whole look. But yeah, I mean that she's just you can't take your eyes off of her, and she's horrifying but also beautiful. Mm-hmm. And you know she. That moment when she and the monster lock eyes and she's repulsed immediately and sort of screeches in fear and runs away from him a bit. And he says, you know, she hate me like others. Mm -hmm. And it's it's just a heartbreak. It's a heartbreak. And then at that point, he doesn't even want to live anymore. No. And he basically throws Henry and Elizabeth out of the lab. Mm -hmm. Pretorius is still there, right? Yeah. So he's so Elizabeth. Somehow escapes the cave right. that she was trapped in and, and runs to the lab and is like, I'm not going to leave without you, Henry. And Henry's trying to say, no, I need to stay with them. Mm-hmm. And the monster says, no, you live, go. Mm-hmm. And to Pretorius and, and his bride, he says, you stay, we belong dead. We belong dead. Yes, exactly. And he blows up the lab yep. and major explosion. Pretty good special effect yeah. for 1935. Well that done. tower blowing up and crumbling. And then that's the end of the movie. Again, not a happy note. No. Well, Elizabeth and Frankenstein live. That doesn't make me happy. I don't like either of them. No, and it's probably not not going to be a happy marriage. It's definitely not going to be a happy marriage. Now, I did wonder, 
as as much as that scene is heartbreaking, and as much as my sympathy is with the monster, there's a certain, from our very modern perspective, is there a little toxic masculinity at work here? <laughs> a little the monster's entitlement mm-hmm. of, I went to all this trouble, why doesn't she love me? Sure, there is some of that, and thinking <laughs> that he is owed love, right. and that he could just, you know, possess her without... <laughs> You know, he didn't even take time to get to know her. That's uh, right. That's exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, sure. There is some of that. There's some of the... Um, he didn't give her time. Like, maybe, you know, she just woke right. up. Maybe give her a few days yeah. before you, you know, get in her face. And yes. she might warm up to you eventually. But no, it's like, oh, instantly, you don't love me. I'm going to blow the place up. Yeah. I, I think there's room for a, a feminist interpretation. <laughs> the monster is an incel. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. All right. So this, I think we agree this is the the more interesting movie the yes. second movie yes it is weirder but it yeah. is more interesting yes but you enjoyed it i really liked bride of frankenstein and i think it was and i i think this is becoming a habit of mine of films that you show me there's always like 10 minutes that i really like and the rest of it I'm like, eh. <laughs> but yes that that last scene with the bride and then i think the sequence with with the blind man is also really mm-hmm. powerful it is um, yeah yeah did you like the monster better speaking or not speaking? Karloff didn't want the monster to speak. Mm-hmm. He felt like that. Ruins the mystique. Ruined the mystique a little bit. Um, I can't quite decide. And we should tell you, if, if, for people who haven't read the book, the monster never fucking shuts up in the book. He's very <laughs> eloquent. He gives a lot of long speeches. Yeah, they went, they went a different way with the monster in the movie. I think it weirdly works. I feel like it hits a lot of the same themes without all the speeches. And I feel like the monster is somehow, he's not as intelligent, he's not as eloquent, but he somehow hits the same feeling as the monster in the book. It's just, it, they made it cinematic instead of narrative. Mm-hmm. But what did what did you think? I mean, yeah, like I mean, like I mentioned earlier, I think that Karloff does a lot of work with his eyes in the mm-hmm. first one in terms of communicating and connecting. And even in the grunts, you can tell, oh, he's sad or oh, he's angry right now or that sort of thing. But I did enjoy him speaking more. And maybe that's just a very human thing of we tend to empathize with the things that we can understand mm-hmm. more clearly. And there were lines that he said that I thought were really powerful that obviously yes. he wouldn't have gotten across yeah. if he weren't speaking. Like the, you know, I hate people, I love the dead sort mm-hmm. of thing. Like the, that just wouldn't have been communicated. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying too. That in, in the book, that would have been a three-page speech mm-hmm. about how terrible people were. Mm-hmm. And they just really streamlined it yeah. for the movie and made it much more efficient. And I think it totally works. Okay, so you, you gl- are you glad you saw these two movies? I am. Are you grateful to this okay, process? I feel like that takes are it you, a step further. You know, now seeing the value in the Halloween movie marathon? I don't know about that. And the entire unenthusiastic critic process? I th- you're stretching. I enjoyed watching these two films. That's as far as I'm willing to go. That's not very far. No. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week as Nikki and I move from two of the earliest horror movies on our list to one of the most recent, John Krasinski's A Quiet Place from 2018. That's last year. All right. I was alive when it came out. Got it. 
<laughs> and you didn't want to see it in theaters, so I'm going to make you watch it for this. Did I not want to see it? I think it was one of those movies where I was like, hey, let's go see that. And, and then, then we, I was like, I can wait for never, cable. Yeah, and then I just didn't. Yeah, okay. So that wasn't actively not wanting to see it. It was just like, I don't want to pay for it or I don't want to go to the Yeah, but you are, as we've described, kind of a scaredy cat, too. So. But see, even this one I don't think was supposed to be scary in that way. I think this one's going to have moments that will scare you. Okay. We'll see. I think it's just white people being quiet, which is like my fucking dream. So, <laughs> you know, we may feel this one differently. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, where you can subscribe to the podcast, download earlier episodes, find our contact and social media links, or make a donation to support our work. As always, we encourage you to leave a comment on the show or suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means subjecting your partner to movies they really, really don't want to watch. Chud. I don't even know what the hell that is. Cannibalistic Humanoid Underground Dwellers. It's an, it's an acronym. Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> and then I've seen that. I've seen those. What do you mean you've seen that? That's basically what that movie, Um, what's that movie that I watch all the time with the creepy things that look like you in the dark? The Descent? Yes. Look, first of all, not really the same movie <laughs> at all. Second of all, it don't look like they me are in the cave, dark. Cannibalistic Humanoid somethings in the, like, that sounds like what The Descent is. You don't think that was a little insulting, what you just said? I think this whole process is insulting to me, so I feel like you're, I I owe you a jab. I, I guess that's fair. Thank you.